I don't know about you, um, but there are times where I feel overwhelmed uh, with our society. I don't know if it's because I spend too much time on Twitter, but uh, there's just a weight sometimes that I feel, uh, and, and it moves to almost nausea, where I'm sick of the violence uh, in our own city and beyond. Uh, I get kind of overwhelmed with uh, the generation that seems to be defined by hatred. Um, I feel like there are moments and times where uh, everyone's opinions seem to be so divisive that it doesn't even appear that there's a moment where we're ever going to come together. And I don't know if it's because it's 4th of July weekend and we're reminded of so much uh, as a country or if it's just because uh, of where I'm at, but I feel like um, as a society, I don't know the pathway forward. I, and it looks dark to me. And, and, and what I've come to uh, believe is that we are not meant to solve everything. We're not meant to fix everything. We're not meant to solve the world's problems. In fact, the moment we solve a problem, we create another problem. And I think that is our problem. Uh, however, what we can do as God's people is we can mourn. I think a lot of times we try to solve problems instead of mourn the reality that we have these problems. And our world is broken. And I don't think there's anyone that would disagree. Whether you uh, follow Christ or not, I think you would agree that our world is broken and evil appears to be winning and sin seems to be actively and openly uh, being celebrated uh, consistently and we can make excuses for it. But often our excuses are in an effort and an attempt to no longer mourn and yet mourning is what we've been called to do. Violence and death are always cause for mourning because hell openly welcomes all who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And so uh, neither hate nor blame will solve anything, but what I've come to realize as followers of Christ is that we can fall on our knees, humble ourselves before God, and recognize that we are sick and in need of healing. We are lost and we need a savior. We see hate, but we have the opportunity to bring love. And you and I, we're in a volatile position as a society, but I need us to maintain the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that love will win. Christ's love will overcome. And so we pray for our communities, and we pray for our nations, and we pray for our leaders. We pray that all will find Jesus, that all will allow uh, the love of Jesus to permeate the, the, the deepest parts of our souls. And the gospel of Jesus, may it invade every space that where hate is present, we move towards love, that it pushes back darkness. And in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles, rather, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their lands. If we recognize that our land, our society, our culture needs healing, then we see the pathway forward. We humble ourselves, we fall on our knees, we ask God to forgive our sins, not the world's sins, but our sins. That our relationships, our marriages, our families can then be built on humility and genuine love and kindness and repentance. And we allow the message of Jesus Christ to take root in our hearts. It becomes evident in our lives. And so if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been working through James. 
James has been going to work in our hearts, and he's been uh, surgically removing things that do not honor and glorify God, and we've been uh, under the knife, for so to speak, for the last five weeks, talking about uh, the vast areas of our life that need changing, and, and today we come to yet another important but difficult issue in our lives, and the issue that James is going to address in us today is the issue of humility, and if we're going to talk about humility, then we need to understand the, the antithesis, the opposite of humility might be pride. And so this morning, we're going to address what it looks like for us to address pride in our hearts, to humble ourselves, with the end result being that God is going to heal our land. Now, anytime we mention the word pride, uh, everybody gets a little like, oh, okay, what are we going to say? Pride has such different connotation today. Uh, pride for me, you know, over the years, it's meant like that guy in the gym who's flexing in the mirror, or that person with money, or power, or fame who feels better than everybody else. Over time, the definition of pride and the thing that comes to mind immediately has shifted and changed. Even more complex is that there are different kinds of pride. There's the kind of pride that we feel after a hard day's work. A couple of days ago, my boys and I were in the yard, and we were cutting up tree branches, and it was hot, and we were sweating, and we could walk away going, I'm so proud of the work that we did. Of course, a storm began and all the trees fell again. So we're going to get to feel pride again. There's this idea, though, that there's a good, wholesome sense of pride and hard work. And yet, there's this other side of pride that is looming. It's the kind of pride that seems to stem from self-righteousness or vain conceit. It's the kind of pride that God directly considers sin. In fact, uh, if we're looking at seven deadly sins, uh, the Proverbs say, uh, there's six things that I detest, six things that God detests. No, there's seven, actually, and pride is one of them. There's the pride that God hates. Pride refers to foolish and irrational, corrupt sense of one's personal value, status, or accomplishments. The pride that God hates is essentially self-worship. That there's this idea that we can be happy and proud of what we've done, and yet when we begin to rely on self, thinking that we're the ones that can solve all the problems, then we begin to slide into an unhealthy and unholy sense of pride. This type of pride keeps us from admitting sin and acknowledging our deep need for Christ. This type of pride comes before fall. This type of pride is what God wants to work on in all of our hearts. Pride or the temptation to be prideful plagues every single one of us. And humility doesn't come easy. There's this weird fine line that we feel between uh, humility and, and, and pride. And, and we want to feel humble, but we also want to feel confident in Christ. And so we walk this line, and James, and James 4 begins to address some of the issues that we face in society. James 4.1 says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. There's a lot to unpack there, we're going to look at some of it, but we're not going to directly address the reality that we have not because we ask not and we ask and we don't get. And there's this idea that there's this tension that is inside of us. And if we get to the core of that tension, it's humility and pride. There's wars that are being waged outside that come from humility and pride and the war that's within us. But if we're honest, there's wars around us and among us. Anybody quarrel with somebody the last six months, six weeks? 
six hours. Anybody in a fight right now with your spouse? There's this idea that we have wars that are, that are being waged around us and, a, and among us. And, and James is talking about conflicts that arise because there's this disordered heart. Our heart is not in right relationship with God. And there are conflicts. They aren't as external as much as they are internal. And they're manifest externally, but they started internally. And some fights aren't evil. They're just fights that just aren't evil. I think we want to make every fight evil because then it's all on the devil. And it's not on us. Not all fights are evil. There are grave injustices that take place in our world that demand that we get upset and we fight against those. But James isn't necessarily talking about those things. What James is talking about is a human heart. Men and women who, who pass us daily with wars waging inside of them. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes in people's lives. I don't know what's going on in your hearts this morning or your minds today. And it's less you're out of line coworker or your wayward rowdy kids or that passive aggressive Facebooker. He's talking about something that is going on inside of all mankind. It's not circumstantial, but it's spiritual. There's a spiritual battle that's being waged inside of us. Not everything is on the surface. Pride and humility, they're waging war in our hearts and we have to go to bat with them. We have to recognize it and they cause disruption in the human heart which causes disruption externally and it's the internal war that fosters the external war. So if you're wondering why there's so much chaos and mayhem going on in the world around us, it's because the human heart is out of line. We as people are, are disordered and we haven't come to where we've humbly positioned ourselves to receive the grace from God. We've, we've allowed pride to, to cause us to feel better or cause us to feel like we don't need Christ anymore. And it's the fight for our own way or the fight for the right that fuels these wars that we wage with one another. And James wants to address it. He wants to talk about it because pride is disruptive and it's damaging. Pride is doing damage to our relationships and our homes and our families and our societies and our uh, politics and our uh, relations with other countries. And pride is destroying and, and ripping apart. And if we don't recognize its destruction, we'll keep taking part in this cycle. The other thing I know is that pride causes separation. Pride causes a separation. It causes a, 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 a separation between us and God. And, and James 4, verse 4, James says, adulteresses, exclamation mark. Adulteresses, exclamation mark. God spoke this way in the Old Testament when his people were attracted to some form of idolatry. He calls people adulteresses. When we've become more enamored with things and people and places and culture than with God, and James isn't talking about a woman who, who cheats. He's calling us all promise breakers. You're a promise breaker. The person next to you, they're promise breakers. I'm a promise breaker. And James is just putting a really hard title to it to evoke a sense of, uh, of attention to say, hey, look, you're an adulteress. Anytime we fall in love with anything more than God, we become adulteresses. If you've ever made God a promise in hopes that you'll get something in return, we're adulteresses. We promise God we won't do this thing again, knowing full well that we're going to break it later. We often live like we can trick God. And James is calling us out for it. He's saying we're promise breakers. We've swore we wouldn't do something, and we went and did it. And James 4 continues. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Don't you know that if you're friends with the world... 
then you are hostile with God. James 4, 4 continues. So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes enemies with God. Adulterous is, if you're going to be friends with the world, guess what? You're going to be an enemy with God. James is actively warning us not to get comfortable with the world. Yet if we look at how all of us live, and I'm saying all of us, myself included, I recognize that I am way more comfortable in and with the world than what I should be. James is drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, you can befriend the world or you can befriend God. He's saying the real choice is that you can actually be friends with the world, but know that the end result is an enemy with God. So you and I, on a regular basis, wake up with the decision, am I going to be friends with the world and enemies with God, or am I going to be enemies with the world and friends with God, because the two cannot coincide. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's inviting us now, to imploring us to choose a side. You can be friends with God or you can be enemies with God. Now, many of us, we know better than to conform to the world. The Bible's told us not to conform to the world. Uh, we recognize that we should not conform to the world. And so we position in our hearts that we are not going to conform to the world. But what about our friends' views? What about people's opinions around us? What about society's slow and subtle draw towards sin? Because we're all connected online. We may not conform to the world, but we might start slowly beginning, beginning to conform to our small little worlds. But we don't think we're befriending the world, but over time we're closer to the world than we realize we should be. We look up one day and we realize that our values and our morals and our speech and our actions and our behavior have shifted and have changed to reflect more of the world. And often we conform by celebrating what the world celebrates. It starts subtly and, and slowly and we adopt and we accept a few things here and there and we bend and we cave just a little here and just a little there. And it seems like a small compromise, but over time we realize that at the course of our lives is dramatically becoming more like the world than it is God. And James is calling us out for it. He's saying we're adulteresses. We're actually cheating on God when we cozy up to the world. And Jesus speaks to this in Luke 7, 31. Jesus says, to what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. Jesus calls the people of this generation children. Now this is a bit of an insult, and it should feel like an insult to us as well. He's saying that they make rules, and then they complain when nobody follows their rules, and yet the rules are rigged. You can't win with their rules. Jesus is not afraid to speak the truth. And that if we fall in love with the world and we follow the rules of the world, they're rigged against us. It's a never-ending dog chasing its tail if we decide to cozy up to the world. We will never win. He's exposing the willful perversity, the contrariness in our, our genuine, stubborn, prideful hearts. We must give up the vain idea of trying to please everybody. Isn't that why so many of us cozy up to the world? Is because we want to please everybody. We want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. I don't want to be ostracized. It's impossible 
to please everybody. And the attempt to do so is a mere waste of our time. We must be content to walk in Christ's steps and to let the world say what it likes. We have to desire to be friends with God. Now you in this room, you watching online, listening to this podcast, you may not believe in God. Or you may be questioning God and you may not know, is he real, is he not? Is, he, is this a whole thing that's just made up or is it not made up? You may not believe in God. But I can guarantee you, you don't want to be enemies with him. Even people who do not know if they believe in God know enough to know they don't want to be enemies with a God who may or may not be real. So when we choose to cozy up to the world, we're making enemies with God. We have to choose in this moment. We have to be content to walk with Christ and we have to be content to not allow the world to influence or infiltrate us. And the, the trade for that is separation between us and God. And it's causing our land to be sick. It's causing our world to, uh, in front of us, begin to fall apart. And it's by and large because people like you and me haven't fallen on our knees, humbly repent before God for our sins, and invited God to heal our land. And James says, because of it, we're actually becoming enemies of God. And he says in verse 5, Do you think it's without reason the scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously? James is saying you can be friends with the world, but just going to be enemies of God. But don't you know that God yearns jealously for you? That there's a jealousy that's transpiring. The jealousy of God is a confusing concept. And we often associate jealousy with fear or intimidation or, or weakness. But God is not jealous about you. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for you. And this speaks directly to the reality that God desires a relationship with us. He doesn't want you to be friends with the world. We often think uh, in in children's terms, well, if you're going to be friends with him, then I can't be friends with you anymore. And God's saying, I desire you. I desire to be close to you. I desire to be near you. He's not okay with us being his enemies. We often read this and we go, well, that he's just drawing a line so that, you know, he can be our enemies. If you're not going to love me, then, then I'm just going to hate you. And, and we think that this is an angry statement, but it's not anger. It's love and compassion. He's saying, I so desire to be near you, but I can't be near you as long as you're near the world. Light cannot be in the same space as darkness. God needs us to remove ourselves from our friendliness with the world in order to be near us. And he's jealous for us. And he's sad for the reality that for so many of us it's become easier to be close to the world. And James consistently invites us into a better way. And so again he's saying it's actually better for us to remove ourselves or reject the world and get close to God. And so James gives us God's response to how pride disrupts and separates in verse 6. He says, but he gives greater grace but he gives greater grace therefore he says God resists the proud but look at this he gives grace to the humble now this should excite every single one of us because we all need God's grace now some of us we become so prideful that we don't recognize our need for God's grace I can fix everything I can take care of everything I can maintain stuff I don't need God's grace but when we actually humble ourselves we recognize we need God's grace and we can receive it but it's only when we are humble 
And I think the tension that we feel is that when we slide into pride or self-reliance or self-worship, we don't realize the need for humility. And when we slide into humility, it's only then that we go, oh man, I was so prideful before. Ever thought that you were right about something? You just argued with your spouse, your position, and, and at some point in the argument you realize you probably weren't right, but you're too far in, so you just got to double down, and you start just coming up with your rational things to confuse them in order to uh, hope that they just maybe drop it, you know, because you know you're going to be found out, and you just double down and triple down, I'm like, I, I, I just keep going, you're just digging deeper and deeper and deeper, right? We do this because of our pride, and eventually we're found out. And here's what I know about pride and humility, is that we can choose humility, or humility can choose us. And it's a whole lot easier if we choose humility, because when humility chooses us, it's a lot harder. You've been humbled before, right? Everybody has. We've fallen metaphorically and maybe even practically on our face in front of people, and we've been humbled. And I would much rather be humble than be humbled, and if we keep living in pride, and we keep doubling down and tripling down on our, our stubbornness, we'll be humbled one day. And James is trying to help us avoid this painful option. And what is amazing about God is that where sin abounds, grace increases. So that if we'll recognize that we're sinful and in need of God's grace, and we'll humble ourselves, we'll cry out to God, grace will actually become abundant, it will flood into our lives. That God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We can have our pride, but we can't have pride in God. Because God resists the proud. We cannot have God. The proud resist God in their understanding. They resist the truth of God in their will. They resist the laws of God in their passions. They resist the providence of God. So no wonder God resists the proud. God will give more grace, though, to the humble because they see their need for it. We pray for it. We're thankful for it. And we openly walk with this idea that we are sinners in need of God. And we allow that to be our identity as apart from Christ. I am nothing, but pride will inevitably cause disruption. And it's going to cause disruption in your lives. It'll cause disruption in your finances. It'll cause disruption in our marriages, in our families, in our job spaces. Pride will consistently cause disruption in our life. And a lot of us feel that tension. And we don't realize why. Why is this not clicking? Why is this not working? Why is everything so difficult? Why is my job so hard? Why is relationships so challenging for me? Why can't I get uh, my finances in order? Why can't I get things moving? You ever feel like you're just moving and, and you're walking in mud? And it just, it's slow and it's sluggish and just doesn't feel like things are flowing. You know when you're in the flow? I don't know, because I think creatively, like I feel creatively like in a flow. Uh, I don't know how that works for non-creatives, but I'm sure there's like a flow where you like, you feel like things are just, they're working, they're moving. So I think spiritually a lot of us slide into pride and we don't realize it. It's like walking through mud and things are just, it's just challenging at every front. Oh, oh, it's hard, hard. If we'll just humble ourselves, fall on our face before God and repent, I believe things become open. We begin to flow. The pride causes disruption. But I need you to know ultimately that pride's been defeated. 
That pride has been defeated. I think this is the best information that we can receive today. Is that pride, as well as all other sins, were going to the cross that Christ defeated when he went to hell and, and he was dead and he went to hell and he grabbed the keys and he defeated pride. That you and I don't have to walk with a prideful heart. We don't have to walk with a haughty spirit. And in James 4, 7, he says, therefore submit to God, though. Resist the devil and what? He'll flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and look what happens. He will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? There's so much there, so many directions we can go, but we want to stay centered on this humility and and, and pride, this mindset of humbling ourselves, this mindset of when we slide into pride, we start judging everybody else. I start looking at your life and go, well, there's what you've done wrong, and there's what you've done wrong, uh, and obviously you've done this wrong, and I start judging everybody else, but I don't judge me because it's easier to judge you, and so I maintain the reality that I'm the judge, I'm the one who calls sin, sin, and I'm the one who gets to uh, think what is right is right, and it's because of pride that we keep destroying and not building up, and James gives us the solution to pride, the method by which we find humility in our everyday lives, which leads to more grace. And he gives us a list of things that we have to do. This is the method by which we bring health and healing to our nation and our communities and to our families. That if you're here this morning and you recognize that something is broken in our world, the fix starts with you. The fix starts with me. It starts with us choosing to submit to God. You may think the solution is a different president. You may think the solution is a different uh, uh, Congress member, or a different world leader, or a different judge, or a different mayor, or, or a different pastor, or whatever. That might be what you think the solution is. But James is saying the solution is for you and I to submit to God, to let go. This act of submission is an admission that God is Lord of our lives, that he is running and leading and and ruling our nation. He's taking care of things. And the hardest advice of all to a person reliant on themselves is let go. The hardest thing you can tell someone who is prideful and stubborn and relying on their own abilities is you've got to let go and trust God. To submit to admit our weakness, to submit is to combat pride at every front, to say, I am not capable, I need God. Submission to God is the antidote to pride. If you want to push back pride at every front in your life, it's submission to God. How do we submit? The, James tells us we've got to resist the devil. If I resist the devil, uh, God will be faithful to make a way out. If I resist the devil, if I resist temptation, then the enemy will flee. It's crazy how many issues we can actually avoid in our lives if we will make priority resisting the devil. 
I don't know what resisting the devil looks like for you, but often it looks like resisting temptation. Often it looks like when you see something, that thought enters your mind, you stop it, you thwart it at the front. I'm not going to think that anymore. I'm not going to dwell on that. All sin starts with a thought. All thoughts start with what we see or hear. And so we dwell on those things. We imagine our lives and what they might look like if we were to follow through with that. And so resisting the devil often looks like stopping that thought in its tracks. Oh, I should just do this, or I should just say this, or I should just spin this, or I should just go here. And we've got to stop that. Resisting the devil. Sometimes resisting the devil means you don't watch that movie, or you listen to that music, or you don't hang out with that person. You don't do those things. Sometimes we have to set up safeguards, boundaries in our lives practically. But if we will not resist the devil, he will not flee. So often the enemy is so close to us because we've allowed, we've welcomed, we're not resistant. The second thing James says is draw near to God. The promise is that if we will draw near to God, God will draw near to us. If we'll draw near to God, he will draw near to us. God is promising you and me, all we need to do is draw near to him. That looks different for different people. Maybe that's reading your Bible more. Maybe that's attending faithfully to church. Maybe that's uh, pouring out what you've learned and giving back. Uh, Maybe that's giving the thing that you need. Drawing near looks very different, but if you've ever felt distant from God, the promise for you and I is that just draw near to him and he'll come near to you. Interesting thing is that the closer I get to God, the more humble I become. Do you notice that in your life? That the closer I get to God and the more I resist temptation and the the less I fall prey to sin, the more humble I feel like I am. The more willing I am to admit that I'm not perfect. That humility cures pride by removing our ego and, and our ability to boast and our own efforts, therefore allowing God to enter in and be near to us and give us grace and mercy So how do we draw near to God? We have to cleanse and purify, James says. We must be serious about our sins that we make an effort to seek forgiveness and purification. See, I spend more effort and intention on justifying my sin than I do understanding the gravity of it. It's easier to go, it's a small sin, it's not a big deal, it's just this, it's just that, than it is for me to go, no, it's sin. And it has to be called out. When we mess up, we must be quick to repent. God, I'm sorry, that was sin, and I don't want to allow sin to sit. James 4 says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Now, you probably did not come to church this morning on the 4th of July weekend to hear me say, be mourning and be weeping. After all, most of us tend to want to go to church to feel better about ourselves. Tell me how awesome I am. Tell me how great I am. Tell me how good things can be if only, you know, I just do this. I can have more, I can be more, I can do more. Just tell me how great I can be. And yet what James is telling us today is that some of us in this room, we need to be miserable. We need to mourn just a little bit. I think because the world keeps telling us that we have to feel happy. Do you feel that pressure sometimes to always need to feel happy? And all of a sudden we forget the weight of our sin, we forget how hurt God is by the actions of our community and our city and our, our world. James forces be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and joy to sorrow. There's something so interesting in a culture that desires constant joy to be told, to be reminded that it's okay to mourn. It's okay to feel sorrow. It's okay to come to God and say, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. James says we should mourn. 
We should stop desiring escapism. We should stop desiring to be numb. And we should feel the weight of our sins some. Because if we make light of sin, we make light of God's grace. If we make light of our sin, we make light of the work of the cross. But when we position ourselves to mourn and to weep, we understand and appreciate laughter. We understand and we appreciate forgiveness of sins. That we cannot appreciate the grace of God if we don't understand the weight of our sins. And if we keep going, well, it's just a small sin, or at least I'm not in jail, or at least I'm not doing that, or at least I'm not on Evansville Watch, at least we're not involved in this, and I'm not fighting with my wife in the front yard at 2 in the morning, like, uh, I'm just not doing those things, then God must be okay with me. And he's going, no, let's weep. Let's be sorry. We have to pause sometimes in our lives to contemplate sin, the reality that Christ went to the cross for sins he didn't even commit. And James 4, 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Now, this is a pretty long list of things that we have to do, but once we get into the flow, and we start getting out of pride, and we start sliding into humility, and we start recognizing our deep need for God, and we resist temptation, and we uh, desire to be near to God, and we draw near to him, then all of a sudden we start seeing light. It's been interesting these last couple of days because everything will be great and the sun is out and you're in the yard working and then all of a sudden sirens go off and you go, why? Someone hit the button too quick. Obviously, they're trigger happy. And then out of nowhere, it gets really dark and stormy and, and, and wind is blowing and then it just gets light again. It's so weird here in the Midwest. It's just odd. We have heard the sirens more in the last four days than we have in the last 15 years of our life three or four times in a day, and, and it just shows up quickly. I think sin is so much just showing up and darkening our hearts, and sometimes we get used to the darkness, and we don't recognize the light, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we humble ourselves. We start working through the process. We trust the process, and light starts to show, and light comes, and then light starts flooding out darkness, and it pushes back pride, and it pushes back our desire to sin. But I notice that when I'm immersed in sin, the desire to sin more is there. When you're in sin, it just makes more sense to sin more, right? It's like eating unhealthy. If I'm eating unhealthy, it's just a lot easier to eat just a little more unhealthy, right? What's one more day of unhealthy eating? What's one more day of just eating whatever I want? And then you get into that cycle, and then you look up and you go, oh no, my body is the byproduct of eating really poorly. When we get into this cycle of sin, it's like, why break out of it now? And it may be a small sin. It may be a subtle sin. It may be something that you've made excuses for your whole life and it's not affecting other people and you don't see the effects of it in your life and you're just gonna hold on to it and God's saying, I want that one. I want that sin. Let's start dealing with things in our lives so that the light may come, so that we may draw near to God. So in this space, what I want us to do in just the last few minutes we have together is I want us just to lay down those things that we've been carrying. There's something so freeing to admitting our sin and laying it down and saying, God, you take it. I don't want to hide it anymore. If you've ever hidden things from others, you know that that secrecy is driving you crazy. Even now, you may have something hidden and it's in your mind. You're going, I hope nobody finds that. I hope nobody finds out about that. I hope nobody sees that. And God's going, I see it. I love you despite it and because of it. And I want to deal with it. So let's go. Let's lay it down. If you would, let's bow your head and let's close your eyes across the room. Father in heaven, in this moment, we recognize that your word says that you hate a proud look. 
and you resist the proud. But God, your word says you give grace to the humble. So this morning, I submit myself to you. In the name of Jesus, I resist the devil. Knowing that he will flee, I renounce every manifestation of pride in my life and I recognize it as sin. I repent and more than that, I turn from my sin. As an act of faith, I clothe myself in humility and I receive your grace. I humble myself under your mighty hand, Lord, that you may exalt me in due time. So Father, I set myself to resist pride when it comes. My desire is to be counted among the lowly so that I take on the attitude of a servant. So God, thank you that you dwell with one who is of contrite and humble spirit. You revive the spirit of the humble and you revive the heart of the contrite one. So thank you that the reward of humility is the riches and honor found in a life with you. So God, we praise you and we thank you that you lift us up. But in this moment, we're choosing we're choosing mourning over laughter. We're choosing sorrow over celebration. We've sinned in thought, word, deed, and action. We've sinned by what we've said. We've sinned by what we should have said. We've sinned by what we've done. We've sinned by what we should have done, but we didn't. And we recognize that if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, then we'll hear from you and you'll forgive our sins and you'll heal our land. And so God, we're choosing this pathway. We're choosing to humble ourselves. We're choosing to repent of our sins. We're choosing to hear from you so that you may heal our land, God. Our land needs healing. But it starts with us. It starts with us. So forgive us our sins. We thank you for your son that died on the cross for our sins, the small ones and the big ones, the ones we recognize and the ones we keep trying to hide and make excuses for. You died for all of them. And in this moment, we're allowing you to go through our hearts, the darkest parts of our hearts where sin may reside, where there's residue of sin that's still hiding and holding on. We give it to you. We allow you to remove it from us as far as the east is from the west. God, take it from us so that we may humbly walk with our God. So we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, if you would stand across the room and let's sing before we receive communion. Turn your eyes. 